0: Hello, my name's Elliot and I run the Anthology of Heroes podcast. Each episode of the show follows the life of a hero from one country of the world, but rather than the stuffy old politicians or tired stories you read about in school, I'll be sharing the forgotten stories of rebels, slaves, heretics, and outcasts, men and women who went against the tide of history regardless of the consequences. If this sounds like your kind of thing, check us out on Instagram and of course all major podcasting platforms. The name again is Anthology of Heroes podcast, and we hope to see you then. In the late autumn of 353 BCE, Philip II, King of Macedon, rode at the head of his army as they marched their way northwards through Thessaly, looking towards Macedon. The imposing snow-capped peak of Mount Olympus, marking the boundary between the two nations coming into view in the distance, that not only served as the seat of the gods, but that also acted as a figurative boundary that many Greeks of the time viewed as the traditional dividing line between civility and barbarity. A boundary that Philip, months back, audaciously dared to cross the first Macedonian incursion into Greece against a Greek army ending in utter failure, their first major setback, harshly cutting off an unbelievable run of successes. Retreat would be the more accurate description of what Philip and his army were doing, but that word, spoken only in his inner dialogue of thoughts, made him wince with bitterness. Whereas to all those around him, Philip put on his customary confident outlook, making it almost seem as if it all had been part of the plan, resolutely stating that, like a ram, they were pulling back only to butt again harder. A number of the tired and dusty troops marching in unison behind Philip half glanced up under their helmets, thinking that it was these type of self-assurances from their king that some might call out as overconfidence as the primary reason why the Macedonian army had ended up landing into such a dismal state. One of the many less than favorable thoughts and questions that swirled around their 29-year-old monarch, including, had Philip's luck finally run out? And is this where the downward spiral for Macedon would begin following the careers of so many Macedonian kings before him? all of these doubts surfacing as a result of Philip making a dire mistake, an impetuous decision that led to his army being recently smashed by the Phocians of central Greece, outsmarted by their commander Onomarchos, with thousands of Macedonian soldiers left behind on the grounds of Southern Thessaly, leaving what remained of the army deeply battered, bruised and with broken morale including a few of which that even dared to mutiny against their leader shortly after their defeat, but that was quickly squashed by their discipline-minded king. Philip moved his horse to the side of the road and stopped, watching carefully as his troops marched on by, completely aware of their mood. Thinking, he needed something to reinvigorate and motivate them, something to turn this defeat into a raging fire of vengeance a broader purpose to attach themselves to. It was easier to inspire when it was about defending one's homeland or reclaiming ancestral lands lost to foreign foes, but all of that had already been achieved. This campaign was about something different, the expansion of Macedonian power beyond its traditional borders. Racking his brain for the key, Philip returned his gaze back to the north Back to Mount Olympus, its majestic presence causing him to pause for a moment deep in thought, before wheeling his horse around and returning to the head of the column, with a small grin appearing on his face that no one else could see as he looked towards the sacred summit, with Philip realizing that the gods held the answer he was looking for. Thank you for joining me and welcome to the Warlords of History Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Episode 16 and the fifth part of the series diving into the lifetime and events surrounding Philip II, King of Macedon. As a quick suggestion before getting into this episode, you may want to first have a listen of episodes 12 through 15 that paint a more comprehensive picture and help to make better sense of what we'll be covering off here that explore the foundation and evolution of the Kingdom of Macedon, struggling to scratch out a meager existence wrestling with deep internal divides, while facing incursions from the surrounding tribal nations of the Balkans and the successive dominant powers of Greece and beyond, including the Achaemenid Persian Empire followed by the city-states of Athens, Sparta, and Thebes, all of whom contributed heavily to Macedon's instability leaving the kingdom precariously close to the edge of despair and facing utter ruin in 359 BCE. The defining point at which Philip was appointed to undertake the seemingly impossible task of guiding Macedon from the abyss, which, amazingly, he managed to achieve through artful diplomacy and clever negotiation, followed by a complete overhaul of the Macedonian military forging and tempering his army into an agile and unrivaled force, with the newly fashioned Macedonian phalanx as the centerpiece, complementing the companion cavalry, among other specialized units, working in symphony to a devastating effect, which was soon put to use, using this relatively small but potent force to begin reclaiming Macedon's ancestral domains in 358 BCE lashing out at the neighbours that had long plagued his kingdom, including the Paeonians to the north, and more importantly, the Dardanian Illyrian tribal empire under King Bardilis to the west. Which, as a quick refresher, is where we pick things up in episode 15, with Philip once again demonstrating his diplomatic guile and acumen to win over some important regional allies, including Thessaly, Epirus and later on the Chalcidian League, winning them over despite the alarm that Maston's increasingly aggressive posture was beginning to raise among the nations surrounding its domains. Concern that was also shared, albeit on a limited scale, by the Athenians who were busy working on the revival of their hegemonic dominance through the Second Athenian League a pursuit that forced the Athenians to become involved in altercations throughout the Aegean, including the social war that had erupted in 357 BCE, pitting the mighty city-state against a collection of its former allies, namely Chios, Rhodes, Cos, and Byzantium, that had broken away from the Second Athenian League. These events, adding to fog the Athenian view, and distract them from the growing threat that was Macedon, where Philip was furiously looking to expand his army, building on his innovative and proven military recipe for success, a vital element to his kingdom's future security, no longer subservient to any foreign powers, but also struggling under the weight of a poor Macedonian economy, unable to fund his aggressive ambitions, causing Philip to launch an audacious plan, besieging and conquering the city of Amphipolis in 357 BCE knowingly setting into motion events that would inevitably lead to war against Athens but from Philip's perspective certainly worth the risk allowing Macedon to take hold of Amphipolis's lucrative gold and silver mines and subsequently use this new possession as a bargaining chip to dupe Athens into handing back the Macedonian city of Pydna as expected, plunging Macedon into war with Athens, whose distracted gaze was then multiplied in 356 BCE, along with almost all nations of classical Greece, pulled into yet another conflict, the Third Sacred War. Further tying up their resources, unable to launch invasions into Macedon themselves, with Athens instead Resorting to their heavy influence to assemble an impressive regional coalition to respond on their behalf. Which Philip had anticipated and prepared for, the newly secured gold and silver from Amphipolis immediately put to use, feverishly poured into the expansion of the Macedonian military, before taking the initiative and striking out with the enhanced Macedonian muscle in 356, thoroughly defeating the rebellious Paeonians. The Western Thracian or Odrysian Kingdom, and the Illyrians, one by one, leaving the Athenian assembled coalition in shambles. With the city of Crenides, renamed as Philippi, also conquered in the process, a massive prize owing to its rich gold mines added to the Macedonian Kingdom. And lastly, the Athenian controlled city of Potidaea, conquered by Philip and handed back over to the Chalcidians. Affirming their alliance with Macedon, and more importantly, chipping away at the Athenian presence in Macedon's sphere of influence. It's truly astounding, really, considering everything that had happened. Although his exploits and successes to date would have been achievements worthy of lifetime pursuits, I can't help but be amazed that it had only been four years since Philip had assumed power in 359. Because, by 355 BCE, the trajectory and aspirations of Macedon had completely changed thanks to its 27-year-old king. Fueled by an economy invigorated with gold and silver streaming in, that would come to make Macedon the richest nation in the Balkans and Greece at the time. With Philip, in turn, spending aggressively as well, commissioning building projects throughout his kingdom while scaling up and increasing the size of his fearsome army through internal recruitment and training while also employing mercenaries to augment his forces at times as well. When we last left things off at the end of episode 15 it was early 355 BCE. And one lesser known fact regarding Philip was around this time among the many things he was throwing his freshly minted gold and silver coins at This included the building of a Macedonian naval fleet, with elaborate dockyards also constructed in Pella, favoring light, sleek warships, much smaller in stature and less robust when compared to the powerful Athenian navy that controlled the waterways of the Aegean Sea, but also much, much faster than the larger and heavier Athenian warships, which was essential for the strategic purpose that Philip had in mind for their use not intended to take the Athenian navy head on, as that would have simply been a waste of good Macedonian lumber and men, and since Philip would have been well aware that attempting to challenge Athens directly in terms of sea-going dominance would have most certainly been a foolish and losing endeavor. The Athenian navy was a juggernaut, second to none and the undisputed master of the Aegean, with its armada containing an estimated 500 plus warships. The vast majority of which were triremes with three rows of oars, but that also included around 30 quadriremes, massive ships boasting four rows of oars. The vessels through which their will and objectives were imposed on the members of the Second Athenian League and really anyone else for that matter. And that would have required decades of labor and copious riches for anyone else to emulate. Philip understood that he was not going to beat Athens on the waterways of ancient Greece. Although by now he would have had the resources to begin building a monstrous fleet, this would have taken decades to complete. And given what we know of Philip's strategic mindset, with so much emphasis placed on mobility and quick, decisive actions, moving at a faster pace than his enemies were accustomed to, Had been essential for surprising and outmaneuvering his foes, the key to his many successes thus far. Plus, Macedon was a land power, with Philip firmly attached to the idea that land based military force was the path to lasting dominance. Sure, a naval power such as Athens could harass Macedon by sea, however, Philip was confident that this impressive reach couldn't extend too far inland beyond the coast. And even if they managed to sack or conquer some of its less fortified coastal cities, Philip would simply retake it once the Athenians left to busy themselves elsewhere, as they inevitably would. Nonetheless, Philip did see strategic value in developing a Macedonian fleet, and historical accounts note that by 353 BCE he would have had over 30 swift warships at his disposal that were put to use doing things like harassing Athenian merchant vessels, its grain convoys traveling through the Dardanelles, emerging from the Black Sea, while also raiding Athenian-held islands and those of its allies that dotted the Aegean. Further distracting and forcing Athens to react to the Macedonian pirate-like behavior all over the Aegean, with their swifter ships outrunning the larger but slower-moving Athenian vessels once they appeared. In fact, one of the more noteworthy events in later years included a small Macedonian naval force that managed to sneak in and capture an Athenian sacred trireme, right from under their noses while it was moored near Marathon. Not a huge military loss, but certainly a major propaganda win that embarrassed the Athenians mightily. It must have been truly overwhelming for the Athenians trying to juggle so many objectives at once naval raids, desperately trying to hold the 2nd Athenian League together, war against Macedon, the Social War, and the 3rd Sacred War, that it comes as little surprise that they started dropping the ball on a number of these items. Because a significant blow to their goal of re-establishing dominance in Greece came in the early spring of 355 BCE, by losing the Social War with a number of their former allies permanently leaving the Second Athenian League. A result which, of course, ultimately weakened Athens, with the meagre consolation prize perhaps being that the end of this conflict at least freed up some of their navy and military forces to strengthen their presence elsewhere. Namely, the city of Methone, the last remaining city under their thumb situated on the Macedonian coast of the Aegean that was now under threat, with Philip bearing down on it by land, launching a full-scale siege by the late spring of 355 BCE. Now, quick correction here. Back in episode 13, I had incorrectly mentioned that the coastal city of Mithone, just 10 kilometers north of Pydna, was previously a Macedonian-founded city that had been taken over by the Athenians in 363 BCE and while this was true of Pydna, this was not the case for Methone. Methone, being an independent city-state, and although surrounded by Macedonian lands, had never been part of the Macedonian kingdom, and was in fact a staunch ally of the Athenians who also held a military presence in the city. If interested, I have a couple of maps on my website that you can take a look at to better understand what I'm talking about here an error which fortunately does little to confuse the sequence of events, being that Methone was the last remaining Athenian presence dangerously close to Macedonian domains, situated just 40 kilometers south of its capital, Pella, making it easy to understand Philip's motivations for targeting the city next, having already snapped up Amphipolis, Pydna, and Potidaea from the hands of the Athenians. Not to mention that Methone, as you may recall from episode 13, had also been the staging point for Argeus, the Athenian backed pretender to Maston's throne, to launch an invasion of the kingdom in 359, marking Philip's first noted military action. And although successful in ending that threat, he wasn't nearly strong enough to consider making an attempt on the city at that point. Although much had changed since then, including Macedon's ability to conduct sieges elevated to an entirely new level, the attack on Methone would be Philip's most difficult siege to date, putting the grit and determination of his army to the test. Because while the Macedonians were able to surround the city almost on all sides, to the north, west, and south of its walls, the east, or port side of Mothone remained open being that the Athenian navy was just too formidable for the Macedonians to complete the encirclement and blockade the city from the sea. Nonetheless, Philip was determined on this set path, looking to erase the last remaining Athenian presence so close to Macedon's heartland, commanding his engineering corps to bring forth the Macedonian rams and begin testing the walls protecting Methone, sniffing around for weaknesses, while urging his troops to make preliminary incursions, raising up scaling ladders at points all around the city, employing a similar strategy to that used in Amphipolis, aiming to exhaust and wear down the resolve of the defenders. However, what soon became clear, right from the onset, was that the defending Methonian and Athenian troops were equally determined to put up a staunch resistance, harshly stinging and pushing back the Macedonian soldiers fighting to gain entrance to the city. You see, despite Methone's walls and fortifications being less formidable than what the Macedonians had encountered in Amphipolis, the open port would prove to be a huge impediment to Philip executing his strategy. And while it may not have been the case when Philip's forces initially began assailing the city, I'm convinced that Methone eventually became much more strongly defended from a numerical standpoint than the two to 3,000 troops that they faced at Amphipolis. With the Athenian warships securing and maintaining the critical lifeline through which additional food, equipment, and more importantly, Athenian military reinforcements were being imported, bolstering Mithoni's ability to fend off the frequent Macedonian assaults. Although no historical references exist as to the specific numbers, the fact that Athens' involvement in the social war had concluded by this time must have freed up at least some of their resources to be redeployed here, strengthening their grip on the city. And despite conflicting versions of what exactly happened during the course of the siege, several historical accounts point to at least two occasions during which the Athenians ushered in reinforcements into the city that pose serious risks to the success of the Macedonian attack. Not only helping to strengthen and enhance the defending force manning the battlements, but also very likely by conducting raids and skirmishing out from the protection of the walls to harass, damage, and delay the Macedonian siege equipment, slowing any progress being made down to a crawl. Because although kicked off in late spring 355, the siege would drag on and on, and was still in full swing by the dawning of 354 BCE, with no conclusion in sight and the result still in question, with an outcome that was about to become far more uncertain for the Macedonian forces. Because early into 354, as Philip was out as usual at the front lines with his troops inspecting the positioning and progress of his siege engines, An archer from atop Methone's walls, having spied Philip's position, took the opportunity to launch an arrow that managed to hit the young king of Macedon, the arrow ending up embedded into his right eye, mere centimeters from ending his life outright. An arrow that was said to have been inscribed with Philip's name on it, although this detail, while poetic, is almost certainly a fanciful addition that was later added for dramatic effect. Though what would have not been an over-dramatization was the fear and uncertainty that would have taken root, quickly spreading throughout the Macedonian camp like wildfire. Knowing that Philip, the man who had salvaged Macedon and drastically reversed its fortunes, imbuing it with a renewed sense of power and prestige, was now at death's doorstep. With the possibility of everything that had been built under his guidance quickly unraveling due to one rogue arrow. Also, since there was no obvious capable successor, well at least no one of Philip's caliber ready to take his place, with his son Alexander being a small infant at the time. However, thankfully for Philip, accompanying him and his formidable army was also the celebrated and undeniably skillful Macedonian royal physician by the name of Critobulus, who, as a quick side note, would regularly have his hands full, being called upon to provide life-saving treatments to Philip throughout the course of his career, later winning even greater renown, successfully treating Alexander the Great. One famous instance in particular, being saving Alexander's life from an arrow that had pierced his chest and lung an injury that was sustained by Alexander while battling against the Malians in India in 325 BCE. Critobulus, upon seeing the grievously injured Philip rushed into his tent, would have immediately sprung to action, commanding those carrying the king to hold him firmly down while others strapped him to a table, so as to not disrupt the careful work that his steady hands would be needed for reportedly using a medical instrument called the Spoon of Diocles, which, although no verified examples of this device have surfaced to date, has been described as an object with a long iron handle and a sharp spoon-shaped tip that could be used by the surgeon to precisely extract the arrow from wherever it was lodged. Yikes. I can't help but cringe with horrid fascination to think that a procedure of this nature could have ever been conducted without the use of anesthetics. Granted, Philip must have passed out from the overwhelming waves of excruciating pain, allowing Critobulus to continue his fastidious work, afterwards carefully cleaning the wound and applying a cocktail of various herbs to reduce inflammation and prevent infection. This, while the whole of the Macedonian army held its breath as to Philip's fate so tightly tied to theirs and the fate of their kingdom. With a palpable sigh of relief released by all, well, maybe except for the inhabitants of Methoni and its Athenian defenders, when Philip began showing signs of improvement over the next couple of days, who despite the pain, was soon on his feet once again. In fact, the first century Roman writer and naturalist, Pliny the Elder, who authored the encyclopedia Natural History, Noted the procedure, stating that Critobius also rendered himself extremely famous by extracting an arrow from the eye of King Philip with so much skill that although the sight was lost, there was no defect to be seen. Which, although a glowing review of Critobius' handiwork, is not entirely true, because numerous historical descriptions cite Philip as having a notable scar covering his right eye. Though, to the credit of Critobius, it's an amazing testament to his skill that Philip survived this injury that could have been very likely where Philip's story might have ended had this capable physician not been around. As Philip slowly recovered from his near fatal injury, undoubtedly fighting through frequent bouts of severe pain, his stubborn refusal to remove himself from the front lines, nor show any hints of fear acted as a driving source of inspiration to his army, breathing a renewed sense of energy into their siege of Methone that had previously bogged down to a crawl. Invigorated, the Macedonian rams accelerated their unrelenting prodding of the walls, while Philip's troops began to more aggressively test the will of the defenders, that now, about a year into the siege, was beginning to show signs of wilting in part due to the lack of additional reinforcements coming in to help the defending contingent. You see, despite the arrival of two Athenian fleets in the prior year and the fact that Methoni's port remained open with supplies still filtering in, it was beginning to dawn on both defender and attacker alike that the amount of troops fighting to protect the city were not enough, with their fortifications deteriorating all around them and casualties mounting. While the social war had ended, freeing up some of the resources, the Athenians still remained involved in other initiatives all over the Aegean, including the Third Sacred War, and only had so much to pour into Mithone to keep it out of Philip's grasping hand. The last straw being a fierce Macedonian assault in late spring 354, wherein Philip commanded the bulk of his soldiers to climb into the city, followed by having the scaling ladders removed, a foreboding message to his troops that he would accept no retreat. A message that the invading Macedonian troops responded to with ferocity, storming the city and pushing back its overwhelmed Mithonian and Athenian defenders. That quickly sobered up to the realization that all was lost, laying down their arms and surrendering Mithoni to Philip. As Thomas Leland put it, In his book, The History of the Life and Reign of Philip, King of Macedon. The position of the besieged could not prevent considerable numbers from gaining the battlements, when, to cut off all retreat, Philip ordered the scaling ladders to be removed, thus leaving his men to the desperate alternative, either of dying or pursuing their advantage. The Methonians soon found all resistance in vain, laid down their arms and submitted to the mercy of the victor, who treated them not only with moderation, but kindness. Given that the siege had been ponderously long and so hard fought, costing so many Macedonian lives and Philip's right eye, kindness is perhaps somewhat of a looser term than what I would have applied in its aftermath. However, it was noted that Philip was surprisingly lenient with the Mithonian and Athenian troops left alive in the city, allowing them to leave the city unharmed, but only with the clothes on their back and some meager provisions, before proceeding to erase Mithoni off the map entirely, pulling down all its fortifications and buildings, reducing the city to rubble. Not coming from an emotionally driven desire, but more so from a strategic perspective, since the coastal city and port was essentially redundant, given that the Macedonian port of Pydna lay only a short distance away. The erasure of Methone marked a significant milestone in Philip's career. Beyond the arduous accomplishment in itself, yet another test passed by the fearsome military machine he had built, the kingdom of Macedon was for once freed of any Athenian possessions within or near its domains all its ancestral lands, disputed or otherwise fully reclaimed, and borders firmly secured. The bulk of nations within classical Greece and the Balkans, particularly those in Macedon's more immediate neighborhood, taking note, increasingly shuddering at the thought of raising Philip's attention, considering the unending series of successes that Philip had managed to string together. A stark difference from just six short years ago, with few remaining foreign entities that would have seriously entertained any invasive actions into Macedonia, allowing Philip, from here on in, to focus on expansion, the expansion of his kingdom, its territory and influence, shaping Macedon into a superpower, looking towards hegemonic dominance, which I am convinced that he was looking towards by this point. Although perhaps not knowing the path he would need to take to get there, given the ever-shifting sands of alliances and warfare, constantly changing between the nations in that part of the world, because despite the eye injury, which did nothing to slow Philip down, once the hard-fought business at Methoni was fully concluded by mid 354, he immediately turned about, leading his army eastwards, marching 250 kilometers through Macedon, en route to its recently established border at the Nestos river, before pushing deeper into Thrace, also known as the Adrygian kingdom once again. As you may recall from episode 15, in 356 BCE, Philip had been active in the westernmost portion of the Adrygian kingdom for some time, conquering large tracts of territory there after having taken possession of the city of Crinides, renamed as Philippi, a campaign during which the western Odrysian king Beresades was also slain in the process. Sadly, few historical accounts detail as to what unfolded over the course of the next year in our sequence, from 354 to mid-353. However, it appears that Beresades' successor allied himself with the ruler of Central Thrace, a man by the name of Amadocas II, who together were in the midst of commencing retaliatory attacks against Macedon. Interestingly, at the same time, Amadokas was squabbling against Kersobleptes, the powerful ruler of Western Thrace, who were both competing for control of the entire Odrysian kingdom. All of this accumulating to the perfect complicated political web for Philip to weave himself into and tease out advantages for Macedon resulting in Philip and Cursobleptes affirming an alliance and planning to squeeze amadocus out of central Thrace. And for unknown circumstances, although this alliance soon broke down, Philip proceeded to campaign and conquer in western and central Thrace from 354 into mid-353 BCE, with a large force whose size I would place at around 15,000 strong proceeding to defeat the forces amassed under Beresides' successor and Amadokas, assuming control of yet more Thracian lands, a campaign that included the attacking and conquering of two notable Athenian allied port cities on the Thracian coast of the Aegean Sea, the rich merchant hub of Abdera, followed by Maronia, famous in antiquity for wine production, thereby greatly extending Macedonians' eastern borders and bringing it dangerously closer to the Gallipoli Peninsula, which is today the European part of Turkey, with the Aegean Sea to the west and the Dardanelles Strait to the east. Why is this significant? Beyond the obvious benefit of increasing Macedonian might, for two additional reasons. First, control over the Dardanelles, called the Hellespont at the time, would pose another serious threat to Athens, allowing Philip to more easily choke off the flow of grain emerging out of the Athenian cities along the coasts of the Black Sea, vital for feeding its population, since the rocky lands of Attica surrounding Athens were insufficient for doing so. And second, in bringing Macedon's eastern border close to where the behemoth Achaemenid Persian Empire began, a mere stone's throw away across the Hellespont in Anatolia, today part of Turkey and Asia Minor. And although it's quite unlikely that Philip was seriously considering making any incursions into Persia at that point, he would have been building relations with a broader scope of foreign leaders now, including the Achaemenid regional leaders of western Anatolia. But again, even if these thoughts of campaigning in Persia were anything more definitive than musings at this point, in mid-353, Philip's focus and rapt attention was soon called westwards back to Greece. Beckoned by the call of his allies in northern Thessaly, those from the city of Larissa, who began imploring for Philip's assistance in the Third Sacred War. The war which we explored the origins of in the last episode beginning in 356, and that continued to rage on while Philip was fighting for Methone and in Thrace. With the central Greek nation of Phocis, bolstered by its Athenian and Spartan allies, having sacrilegiously overtaken the ponderous riches from the temple of Apollo and Delphi, using these stolen funds to raise large mercenary armies and battle the Amphictyonic League, that among its members included Thessaly, but was essentially dominated by Thebes. All the aforementioned combatants, but primarily focus on Thebes, taking part in a series of skirmishes and battles that was steadily exhausting the nations of central mainland Greece, with no end to the conflict in sight. Into early 353, however, phocis managed to get a toehold into Thessaly, allying themselves with a tyrant by the name of Lycophron that had risen to power in the southern Thessalian city of Pharae. This alliance serving focus by dividing and weakening Thessaly's ability to wage war thereby reducing the number of combatants they were facing, while serving the tyrant Lycophron, who was looking to leverage this alliance and focus his large mercenary armies to help him take over all of Thessaly, which is where Philip comes in, his allies in the city of Larissa in Northern Thessaly imploring the Macedonian king to intervene on their behalf. But a pretty significant problem remained because while his eye must have dazzled with the opportunities that came with this request, Philip and his army were in Thrace, some four to 500 kilometers away from Larissa. Of course, the Macedonian army, among its many impressive characteristics, featured excellent mobility by the standards of the time. However, even so, Philip was concerned that marching the entirety of his forces by land would eat up too much time resulting in Larissa being overrun before he could get there. A daring, seagoing gamble was the solution, calling upon his growing fleet of small but swift Macedonian warships, along with commandeered merchant vessels, to ferry as many soldiers as they could from Abdera, in modern northeastern Greece, to the Thessalian coast. At most, and probably bursting at the seams in doing so, transporting no more than four to 5,000 troops, or roughly one-third of the royal army, with the rest following by foot over land. And when I say he called upon his entire fleet, what I really mean by that is almost his entire fleet. Because the four fastest Macedonian ships, manned by the best sailors, were sent forward first, intended to be used as a decoy to draw away the Athenian warships that were constantly patrolling along the Macedonian coastlines voraciously preying upon any Macedonian ships that appeared. A ruse that worked like a charm, with a fleet of large but slower moving Athenian triremes trailing after the four Macedonian ships that appeared in the distance, who, feigning surprise, then turned about, leading the Athenian fleet away from the coast and far out into open sea. Clearing the path for the rest of the Macedonian ships to safely usher Philip and a portion of his army to Thessaly. A great distance covered in a short amount of time, so much that, upon landing in the area, Philip came to learn that not only had Larissa not been attacked as of yet, but that the opposing allied forces of Phocis and Ferre had still not united their strength. Though scouts had revealed that an army of 7,000 Phocian mercenaries was en route to link up with Lycophron's forces in Foray. Wanting to get ahead of this, Philip immediately set out with his smaller contingent of four to 5,000 troops. And although there are no sources surrounding how this encounter played out, what we do know is that the Macedonians managed to thoroughly smash the larger Phocian army before they could reach the city, with Philip intending to assault Foray next, but lacking the numbers to do so. Forcing him to return to Larissa and await the arrival of the rest of his army, that was still weeks away, traveling through Macedon by foot. However, by the time they reunited, and as Philip was gearing up to set out and besiege the city of Phere, towards the fall of three fifty three, reports began filtering in that a much larger mercenary army under Onomarchos, the Phocian commander in chief, was now approaching southern Thessaly, as before. Despite being outnumbered by the Phocians yet again, Philip, more confident than ever, convinced that nothing could stop his fearsome Macedonians in battle, decided to meet this new threat head on. Now, before we get into what happened next, let's take a quick moment to talk about these mercenaries, called Mistophoroi, of ancient Greece, because I've mentioned them a great deal in this episode. During this time, the heavily armed and armored Greek hoplite warriors were widely regarded as the finest infantry that money could buy, considered as such after headlining as the primary land-based tool through which the armies of the Achaemenid Persians were defeated and pushed out from Greece and the entirety of mainland Europe by 479 BCE. And while hoplite-based citizen armies were largely the standard for city-states during the 5th century BCE, By the 4th century, this was beginning to evolve, with more Greek hoplite mercenary groups appearing. The supply of these soldiers for hire increasing with greater demand, driven by nations looking to augment their armies in a pinch, a list that included among many, many others, Athens, various Persian states, and in Macedon as well, with Philip regularly acquiring their services. In some instances, such as with the Phocians, their armies consisting almost exclusively of mercenaries. The obvious benefit being, if possessing the coin to do so, that a state could amass a large army of professional soldiers in a relatively short period of time, without having to go through all the trouble of recruiting and training its citizenry. Also helping to deal with one of the fundamental challenges preventing states from keeping up their military strength, since citizen soldiers were part-time soldiers. In that, beyond their limited effectiveness due to having not much more than basic training, while some wealthy citizens didn't want to risk their lives or the lives of their families in war, other less well-off citizens simply couldn't afford to abandon their farms for prolonged periods of time. All these factors contributing to the increasing demand for mercenaries, resulting in quite the lucrative profession for people willing to risk the dangers associated with this type of occupation, attracting a wide array of Greeks to enlist in mercenary groups, those coming from impoverished backgrounds, former criminals and exiles, and others that just thirsted for plunder and adventure. And while during times of peace they were shunned and forced to live apart from most societies, during times of conflict, they served as a quick and convenient solution to wage war, again, provided that a state had enough coins to afford their services. Which, going back to our main story, the Phocians, at least for now, had in abundance a dragon's hoard worth of gold and silver pilfered from the temple of Apollo in Delphi. Allowing the Phocian commander Onomarchos to make his way into southern Thessaly. At the head of an enormous force of just over twenty thousand, mostly mercenary soldiers, the vast majority of which would have been heavily armored hoplites, and despite being outnumbered, the Macedonians fielding a force in the realm of fifteen thousand troops, Philip led his army straight towards them, determined to strike a devastating death blow to focus his ambitions. Philip himself, brimming with confidence the morale of his finely tuned Macedonian soldiers riding sky high, having seen nothing but success upon success since he had assumed leadership of the kingdom. Indeed, it must have seemed as though there was nothing that could stop them. A notion that Onomarcos too would have had some awareness of, acting cautiously, given the notorious prowess and skill displayed by these Macedonian adversaries who had recently proven their worth the rashing the smaller Phocian contingent only months prior, causing the Phocian commander upon learning that Philip was advancing his way to stop and take up a strong defensive position, locating the ideal landscape to make their stand. And while it's rather unfortunate that the location of this battle has been lost to the ages, it was described as being inside a pocket of land surrounded by a semicircle, or better yet, a crescent shape of mountain slopes, with Onomarchos forming up his army at the mouth of the crescent, between the two adjacent ridges, reducing the chance of a Macedonian flanking maneuver and giving him the option of pulling his hoplite mercenaries deeper into the pocket, occupying the highest grounds closest to the mountain base, offering an excellent defensive position for fending off the Macedonian army would be facing an uphill approach but curiously one that left few options for the Phocians to make an escape or retreat if overwhelmed. A feature that Philip quickly picked up on and regardless of the defensive advantages that the site offered the Phocians since they were effectively cornered Philip upon locating their position decided to meet them head on commanding the Macedonian phalanxes forward Supported by his shield bearers to their right, aiming to push the Phocian lines back far enough to make space for his light infantry and companion cavalry to enter the fray and attempt flanking the opposing army. Initially, seeing a great deal of success, finding both the unfavorable slope and Phocian mercenaries doing little to hold back the Macedonian advance, that proceeded to easily push the Phocians beyond the opening of the crescent deeper into the pocket of land. It was almost as if it were too easy, unfolding exactly as planned. Which it was, a rather inventive ploy devised not by Philip, but by Onomarchos. The Phocian hoplites feigning a retreat, but then turning back at a predestined point and digging their heels in, straining to stop the Macedonian advance who were now clogging up the entrance to the mountain valley, which probably would not have been too much of a problem for them had it not been for the large stones and arrows and smaller rocks being cast down on them from above. Phocian catapults camouflaged and positioned on the ridges overlooking the valley entrance, being used as field artillery to lob stones into the mass of Macedonian soldiers along with archer and slinger mercenaries that peppered them with missiles. A perfectly executed plan that immediately began to wreak havoc among Philip's forces and formations, showing that even the most confident and disciplined of armies could readily collapse given the right circumstances, which the Macedonians succumbed to in an epic fashion. Dismayed and falling hopelessly into a disorganized mess allowing the Phocian hoplites to then charge in and complete the route, forcing Philip to call for retreat. Historical accounts not providing any specifics, but emphasizing a high proportion of casualties among the Macedonian soldiers, probably in the low thousands. With Philip leading the rest of his severely battered and bruised army out of Thessaly entirely, limping all the way back to Macedon by the winter of 353 BCE. Though before leaving the region, desperately trying to maintain an aura of confidence, with Philip working hard to spin the public relations side of this heavy loss, reportedly stating, I did not run away, but like a ram, I pulled back to butt again harder. Clearly, this was a tough pill for Philip to swallow. His first real foray into Greece facing a Greek army in a pitched battle, and it had all gone terribly wrong. Although the disastrous campaign didn't lend to the idea that his reinvented army was incapable of defeating a Greek hoplite army, since it hadn't really been a toe-to-toe fight, it's abundantly clear that the morale of his troops had been shattered by the one-sided loss, along with doling out a significant hit to Philip's credibility and prestige. The golden sheen of invincibility surrounding him, now irrevocably tarnished, having been outsmarted and outmaneuvered by Onomarcos. In fact, morale fell to such a low point among his soldiers as they made their way back to Macedon that Philip was forced to squash a budding mutiny within his ranks, but quickly managed to re establish control. Though lingering questions must have remained in the air, not just among his soldiers but a rather long list that included the Macedonian nobility, his kingdom's external allies, and foes. Is this where Philip's luck would finally run out? Would his reign, regardless of the promising start, just end up being like all the other Macedonian monarchs before him, that saw a short burst of momentum only to stumble, with everything unraveling before their very eyes? This was a critical point for Philip. Quickly growing apparent that another failure of this magnitude could result in all of his dazzling achievements imploding at once, cascading his kingdom back into internal discontent, including the possibility of another being raised up to take his place, while foreign powers waited on the wings, watching intently and ready to swoop in, relegating Macedon back to its historical position as a second rate kingdom. All of this was contingent on Philip's next actions, who was undoubtedly aware of these rumblings, but ultimately ignored them and set to work once back in his kingdom, focused on rebuilding his army, its numbers, and confidence, leading to a copious amount of drilling and training over the course of the winter and into early 352 BCE. With Philip, as usual, out in the field with his soldiers in the thick of things, reaffirming their loyalty to his leadership, again demonstrating his charismatic side through rousing speeches and his uncanny ability to inspire others, binding the Macedonian soldiers to his will, and it probably didn't hurt that Philip had elected to increase the pay of his troops at around this time, all the while making it resoundingly clear that they together would avenge their loss from the prior year. But beyond this, Imbue his army with a larger, sacred purpose, each individual soldier acting as an avenger of the gods, taking part in a divine mission to bring the sacrilegious Phokians to their knees. A sentiment that resonated heavily, since, as mentioned back in Episode 12, the Macedonian religious beliefs mirrored much of those held throughout Greece, following the deities of the Greek pantheon. All in all, a marketing masterstroke conceived by Philip, who was soon out on the warpath once again, leading his invigorated and vengeance seeking army back into southern Thessaly by the early spring of 352, this time numbering approximately 20,000 infantry and 3,000 horsemen. A count that included a sizable contribution of the famed Thessalian heavy cavalry, widely regarded as the finest cavalry in Greece since, like lower Macedon, ancient Thessaly's broad central plains were ideally suited for fostering horse herds of excellent stock. While Philip was in Macedon rebuilding his military and selling in the notion of their divinely inspired mission, Onomarchus didn't use this opportunity to attack northern Thessaly and the city of Larissa, opting to instead take his army back south, fighting in Boeotia the lands around and under the sway of the city-state of Thebes, focused on conquering cities closer to the Phocian domains, allowing Philip to march unopposed into southern Thessaly, who interestingly bypassed the city of Pharae, choosing to overrun and occupy the more lightly defended coastal city of Pagase, near modern-day Volos, Greece, accomplishing this with relative ease and then remaining there, so why did Philip pause there, when Ferray and defeating the Phocians were his more central objectives? Well, it was a strategic calculation with a threefold benefit. First, conquering Ferray would require a lengthy siege, and Philip didn't want to get caught there conducting operations that would erode his troop strength, with the Phocians then arriving at his back. Second, Pagase was the main port servicing the city of Ferray just about 20 kilometers to the east. And while the Macedonians holding it wouldn't prevent the Phocians from marching into Thessaly from the south, it would make it difficult for any of its other allies, namely Athens, to bring in additional support via the sea. And third, and most importantly, Philip was waiting there, conserving his army's strength, attempting to draw Onomarchus in for another fight. This time, however, on a battleground of his choosing, aiming to leverage the strength of his superior cavalry, in both quantity and quality to the 500 horsemen that the Phocians possessed. Which was exactly what happened, with Onomarchus again responding to the pleas for aid from the tyrant of Farré, before confidently marching straight towards the port of Pagase, with his mercenary army of 20,000 infantry and 500 cavalry, who had hardly received a scratch in their last battle against the Macedonians. With Philip in turn leaving a small contingent in Pagassae as the Phocians approached, arraying the bulk of his army in a nearby flatland plain, in view of the sea that was reportedly awash in a springtime bloom of crocus flowers. Alluding to the name of this encounter, the aptly named Battle of Crocus Field, that a number of historians have named as the bloodiest battle recorded in ancient Greek history. And where, when the Phocians arrived on the scene, they found the Macedonians formed up, the likely formation being with the Macedonian phalanxes and other heavy infantry lined up across the center with the light infantry, companion and Thessalian cavalry units situated on the wings. But with one other unusual addition, each and every Macedonian and Thessalian warrior wearing crowns of laurel on their helmets, a symbol associated with the god Apollo, thus embodying and invoking his strength and favour. As if each and every soldier of Philip's army was to be a deliverance of Apollo's wrath, levelled upon the Phocians that had dared to defile his temple in Delphi, a form of psychological warfare ordered by Philip that was said to have hardened the determination of his army while at the same time deeply unsettled many of the Phocian troops before the battle had even started. Truth be told, the battle sequence is terribly muddled and lacking sequential details from a historical standpoint. But the prevailing notion is that Philip commanded the Macedonian phalanxes across the entirety of the line to lead the attack, Sarissa pikes reaching outwards steadily advancing across the plains before locking together with the opposing Phocian mercenary hoplites that were soon latched together in a grinding and laborious death grip. Two massive waves of 20,000 infantry each crashing into one another, a sea of spear points and shields amidst grunts of strenuous effort and cries of pain. With the Macedonian anvil holding firm, the inspired Macedonian infantry, the Avengers of Apollo, Holding up remarkably well throughout this pitched battle with few losses, doing exactly what it was designed to do. Allowing the hammer, Philip's combined force of 3000 companion and Thessalian cavalry to give chase, falling upon the smaller group of Phokian horsemen absolutely decimating them in the process, before returning to unleash ruinous charges on the flanks and rear of the beleaguered Phokian infantry, that to their credit, were apparently holding their own, that is, before being assailed by Philip's cavalry, who were charging in, regrouping, and then returning over and over again, punching precarious holds into Onomarchus's hoplites, disrupting their formations that fell into disarray, eventually collapsing under the repeated hammer blows of the cavalry and the unforgiving wall of the Macedonian anvil. A battle in which the Thessalian cavalry won considerable distinction, Philip being so convinced of their skill that it probably comes as no surprise that he incorporated them as a regular part of his army from there on in. And from this, we can also easily see why Philip had selected these large open plains for the battle site, understanding that he had a definitive edge in terms of cavalry that he exploited fully resulting in one of the bloodiest battles in ancient greece heavily weighted by phocian casualties over 6000 phocians left slain on the field including their commander in chief onomarchos with the surprising addition of another 3000 phocians lost at sea wait you may be thinking wasn't this supposed to be a land battle and yes it was however let's turn to the ancient greek historian Diodorus Siculus to help explain the situation. A severe battle took place and since the Thessalian cavalry were in numbers and valour, Philip won. The Phocians fled toward the sea because the Athenians were sailing by with their many triremes. This when a great slaughter of the Phocians was taking place. In their effort to escape, they stripped off their armour and tried to swim out to the triremes. While the battle was underway, Athenian triremes containing reinforcements were spotted just off the coast, but they were unable to find a safe harbour to land and intervene, being that the nearby port of Pagacea was in Philip's hands. Accordingly, beyond the 6,000 left dead on the field, 3,000 Phocian troops decided out of fear to take their chances and attempt swimming out to the vessels of their Athenian allies, though in the end, the distance was just too far and the waves too rough for any of them to make it to safety. Although another alternative explanation put forward that holds some credibility is that these 3,000 Phocian mercenaries were actually prisoners that had surrendered to Philip, who subsequently ordered them to be drowned in the sea. Which sounds a little out of character for Philip, who typically showed a great deal of restraint when dealing with beaten foes, but in this case might have some truth to it, since this would have been a way of denying the Phocians with an honourable burial. Which also helps to explain why Onomarchus's corpse was then crucified, a dishonourable fate befitting sacrilegious temple robbers. All with an underlying symbolic meaning, acting to justify Philip's actions and strengthen his image, including that of his army, as pious avengers of the gods. With the Athenian fleet proceeding to sail off, having failed to intervene in the altercation or save any of their Phocian allies, with the reality being that, even if they had been able to locate a nearby safe harbour by that point, landing their small collection of troops, probably numbering in the low thousands at most to fight the Macedonians now, would have been a death sentence. The overwhelming Macedonian victory at the Battle of Crocus Field amplified Philip's prestige and the power of his kingdom perhaps not yet seen by all as the predestined hegemon of the region, but certainly a formidable nation to be respected and feared, while also enjoying a groundswell of support among the common populace throughout Thessaly, seen as a protector of its people, the gods and the Greek religion. A notion that was helped by what happened next in the city of Pharae, with the tyrant Lycophron who reached out to Philip to negotiate a handover of the city, if Philip were to show mercy and let him live. A deal that Philip had no qualms at all with agreeing to, with Lycophron set free in exchange for the gates of the city swung wide open to Philip. Foray peacefully conquered, without a fight, not costing a drop of Macedonian or Thessalian blood. Effectively expanding Macedon's influence and reach well into the Greek peninsula, pushing far beyond its traditional border at Mount Olympus, with Philip now threatening to extend this reach into central Greece. You see, while the loss at the Battle of Crocus Field was indeed devastating to the Phocians, it wasn't the final death blow to their war effort. And although they would never be as dangerous as they were under Onomarchos, they continued to put their stolen gold to use to rebuild their army by procuring the services of more mercenaries, the Third Sacred War continuing to drag on and on. Though an interesting side note is that the newly acquired mercenaries were now demanding twice the normal rate of pay, pointing to the fate of the Phocian hoplites before them that had recently fallen, forcing the Phocians to burn through their gold at a faster rate than ever. This was why Philip decided to promptly lead his army further south, with the goal of finishing off the Phocians once and for all, preventing them from rebuilding their military strength. An outcome that was simply unthinkable to the Athenians. Not because they held any particular fondness for their Phocian allies, but more so because of heightened fear. In that, if Philip managed to reach the Phocian domains, much worse than Phocis being utterly destroyed would be Macedon having open access to all of central Greece, where the city of Athens lay. A notion that the Athenians shuddered at the thought of, and that they were determined to prevent at all cost. Remember the Athenian warships that had been spotted offshore, in view of the battlegrounds of Crocus Field? Well, seeing what had unfolded there, and unable to intervene in a timely manner, the Athenian commanders moved to Plan B, swiftly sailing their fleet southwards, about 80 kilometers as the crow flies, ending up at Thermopylae and disembarking there, committed to blocking the mainland passage connecting northern Greece to central and southern Greece. This location of course made famous by the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BCE, during the Greco-Persian Wars, in which the geography of the narrow coastal pass played a fundamental role, allowing a Greek coalition of 7,000 hoplites to hold off and inflict massive casualties on the advancing Persian army that was estimated to be anywhere from 10 to 40 times larger than the Greeks. Ending, of course, with the immortalized and romanticized last stand of the 300 Spartan warriors, led by King Leonidas. Philip, fresh off their victory at the Battle of Crocus Field, soon arrived with his army at Thermopylae in the summer of 352 BCE and similar to that of the Persians about 130 years back, found a Greek coalition blocking the passage, consisting of troops from various nations from central and southern Greece that included, among others, the Phocians and Spartans, bolstered by the Athenian reinforcements that had recently arrived. Although the Macedonians far outnumbered the coalition defending the pass, Philip was wise enough not to press the matter. Like all those present, well aware of the historical significance of the passage and the potential optics if he were to fight and lose there. And I'm convinced that Philip had firmly learned the harsh lesson of what could happen when fighting on lands not suited to his army strengths, no matter how well trained and disciplined they were, nor how many successes they had under their belts. That was not something he planned to repeat." Plus, he had already achieved what he had set out to do in this campaign, avenging the Macedonian loss from the prior year, severely hobbling the Phocian war effort in the process, while also acquiring foray in southern Thessaly. Now, this doesn't mean that Philip didn't try to negotiate with the commanders of the coalition, especially the Athenians since they were the most numerous of the group. However, he quickly found that they were in no mood to entertain his overtures, taking a more standoffish posture than usual. Which probably comes as no surprise to us for many reasons, such as the many Athenian and Athenian allied possessions that Philip had since conquered in recent years, and the threat that Macedon now represented, knocking on the doorstep of central Greece. However, this newfound sense of resentment and animosity towards Philip stemmed from a deeper source, one that had more recently originated from the floor of the citizen assembly in Athens, largely thanks to the words of one Athenian politician in particular, Demasthenes, who made it his life mission, his very purpose for being, to argue that it wasn't Thebes, Sparta, or even the Achaemenid Persians that were the greatest threats to Athenian dominance, it was Macedon a notion that's of course obvious to us given the story we've followed to date. But in the context of the time for the Athenians, extremely difficult for them to comprehend how Macedon, a kingdom that had never really been anything more than a backwards barbarian nation, could, in such a short amount of time, ever be considered more of a threat than their more traditional and centuries-old rivals. An idea that still wasn't universally accepted among the Athenians. But to his credit, Demasthenes was starting to convince some, delivering the first of his Philippic warnings at around this time in 352, a series of speeches in the Athenian assembly raising an alarm to the danger that Philip represented. Using the first of his Philippic warnings to point out how Philip, beyond conquering a number of Athenian possessions and taking Amphipolis, that the Athenians still desperately wanted to recover, was also cutting a path to the Hellespont that would eventually enable him to constrict the Athenian grain supply coming out of its breadbasket of holdings around the Black Sea. With Demasthenes seeing some success in his pursuit, managing to get Macedon and its young king reprioritized, not as the biggest of Athenian concerns, but at least sitting among those near the top of their list. A sentiment that Philip must have had some sense of, and that he was careful not to press upon too aggressively, well aware that his kingdom and military was still not up to strength to be able to take on what a grand Athenian-led coalition of Greek city-states could potentially bring to the table, a small symbolic representation of which stood in his path at Thermopylae, resulting in Philip turning back, heading north into Thessaly to consolidate his recent gains where Philip leveraged his immense popularity, his image as a defender of its people and the gods to build a solid base of political support throughout the nation. Using his diplomatic savvy, backed by the enormous army at his side to grow his popular support and foster it into support from the bulk of the leading Thessalian aristocratic families, both in the north and south, beyond those he had married into previously. So much that, In the months that followed, Philip was named as Tagus, meaning the supreme military leader of all of Thessaly, thereby in all but name, marking the entirety of Thessaly as the newest addition to the kingdom of Macedon, with Philip spending the remainder of the fall season there presiding over its affairs as would a king. In effect, nearly doubling the size of Philip's realm, a newly birthed empire. Through this title bestowed upon Philip, who was only 30 years old at this point, and who, by the late autumn of 352 BCE, was out on the march once again, leading his army north from Thessaly back into Macedon, where the gods from their vantage point on the top of Mount Olympus must have been looking upon Philip and his victorious army as they passed on by. Taking note of the spectacular turnaround engineered by this king of Macedon, considering that almost exactly one year ago to that point, it had been a very different force that Philip was leading back into their homeland. Heads hanging low in retreat with shattered morale, following their severe defeat against the Phocians. It's amazing really how much had changed in one year's time. These thoughts too may have been occurring to Philip, but only briefly, as he always seemed to be looking to the next objective, the next conquest. And while he realized that the doorway to central and southern Greece was slammed shut for now, Philip would have been confident that future opportunities, ones that he could bend to his will, would eventually surface, allowing him to revisit operations in central Greece. But for now, where one door closes, another opens up somewhere else. To be specific, one near Macedon's eastern border, with the Greek city-states of Byzantium and Perinthus, Sending out pleas of assistance against the aggressive actions of Cursobleptis, the lone remaining powerful Odrysian king in Thrace. Pleas that Philip intended to respond to. In the next episode, we'll follow along as Philip launches yet another devastating campaign into Thrace, taking on the Odrysian king, Cursobleptis securing new lands and cities along the Thracian coast, pushing closer and closer to the Hellespont. Causing not only the Athenians to grow increasingly alarmed, but one of Macedon's strongest allies, the Chalcidian League, fearful that they may soon be the next ones up to be absorbed by the Kingdom of Macedon. Who then flip their allegiance, allying with Athens, together launching a surprise invasion aiming towards the heart of Macedon while Philip is abroad but finding the Macedonians more than equal to the task of defending themselves, with Philip then using his diplomatic magic to weaken the alliance before launching a ruthless campaign deep into the Chalcades Peninsula, then returning back to central Greece and resorting to negotiation rather than force to clear the pass at Thermopylae and to put an end to the exhaustive Third Sacred War, including establishing an uneasy peace treaty with the Athenians, but continuing to work behind the scenes to destabilize and weaken the 2nd Athenian League. All the while building his strength, enlarging his army and domains in the north, in anticipation of the monumental clashes ahead for the control of Greece. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show, It would be greatly appreciated if you could rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions. On future warlords that you think I should do an episode on. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. The music from Audionautics.com